0: As a society, we have lost a sense of vocation, God's call on our life. If we want to see many more happy and faithful marriages, greater valuing of the single vocation, and more priests, deacons, sisters, and brothers, we must deepen and renew our understanding of vocation. Join us today as we talk to Bishop David Zubik of Pittsburgh about how Eucharistic adoration is the key to resolving the vocation crisis. I'm Father Michael Scanlon, Chancellor of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Talking about vocations and Eucharistic adoration. We have a regular panelist here, Dr. Regis Martin, professor of systematic theology and author, and Dr. Scott Hahn, professor of biblical and spiritual theology here at the University, and also an author and director of the St. Paul Center. But our very special guest today is Bishop David Zubik, who is a native of Pittsburgh, Uh, Ordained a priest in 1975, holds a master's degree in educational administration from Duquesne, and in 1997 was ordained an auxiliary bishop for the Diocese of Pittsburgh, and then in 2003, Bishop Zubik was named Bishop of the Diocese of Green Bay, and then in 2007 he was installed as the 12th bishop here in Pittsburgh. In both Green Bay and Pittsburgh, Mrs. Zuzbik has worked to improve vocations to all walks of life, which we're going to look at today on this show on vocations and Eucharistic adoration. So, uh, Bishop, it's great to have you here and it's great to have you addressing this subject on vocations where there's a dearth or a decrease in in numbers of all sorts of vocations and in many ways in vocational awareness. And uh, you have taught on Eucharist being the key to that, to resolving this. So let's get basic first. What do you mean by Eucharist and why is it the key?
1: Well, first of all, Father Scanlon, it's great to be here uh, with you, Dr. Martin, and, you, and, and, and just to be able to share our, our faith together, and Dr. Hahn as well, too. It's great to be here. Um, I think, first of all, I want uh, to, to say I think there's a, there's a change now, I think, happening in terms of people's awareness of vocations. Yeah. I'm certainly seeing that relative to uh, men who are interested in the priesthood, but it is very much connected with the Eucharist. When we talk about the Eucharist, obviously that's the body and blood of the Lord, given to us by Jesus Himself at the Last Supper. And pure and simple, that's what the Eucharist is. But also when we come together to celebrate the Eucharist, to be challenged by God's Word, and, and to receive the Holy, Holy Eucharist, and then to become good servants, that too is an important part of what the Eucharist is about.
0: But the Eucharist reserved in the tabernacle, that's something that people sometimes are confused about. They can hear the teaching on the celebration of mass, the Eucharist and, and special benediction and things, but the Eucharist in the tabernacle, why is that important?
1: Well, I think it's important to recognize that uh, every church building is more than a building. It is a temple. It is the place where the Lord resides. Uh, the celebration of the Eucharist is the most important thing that we can do as Catholics, but it doesn't stop there. And in reality, the presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament and placed in the Tabernacle reminds us that every church that we come into, every Catholic church that we come into is in fact the home of the Lord. And it's a, it's a place, it's a space for us to celebrate uh, the sacred mysteries of our salvation, but it's also a place where we can come in the absolute quiet of every church just to be in the very presence of the real presence of Christ that happens in the Eucharist. You know, I think historically we know that um, you know, the whole practice of reserving the Blessed Sacrament first came to, to try to, uh, to, to make sure that, that communion was available for people who were sick but as, the, as Christianity began to grow and as people began to appreciate the gift of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, that's where the whole notion of adoration began. And for centuries, we've had that comfort of knowing that we can come and be in the presence of Christ. While we can be with His presence anywhere, that's the presence uh, uh, that, that's the most important because it is the real presence of Christ in Eucharist.
0: That's important.
1: You've God. identified
2: the principal source of Eucharistic adoration when you identified the church as a temple. Right. I remember a quarter of a century ago as an evangelical preparing a course on 1 Corinthians and coming across Paul's statement in chapter 3 where he addresses the church in Corinth and says, you are the temple of the Holy, the Holy Spirit. Spirit. And I remember thinking that that's an odd expression because I would have chosen synagogue because that was an assembly where you would gather for the liturgy of the Word, the proclamation. The temple, there was only one of those, you know, many synagogues. But the temple was defined, as you say, by the presence of God, the Shekinah, you know, and also by sacrifice that would never be performed in synagogues, as well as the communion on the sacrificial meal, the sacrificial offering. And as I began to reflect for the next year or two on what Paul was saying, Suddenly it made sense as to why in 1 Corinthians 5, just two chapters later, he's explaining, Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed for us, therefore there is a feast to keep. And this, of course, is pointing back to the church. If we really are a temple, first of all, there better be a divine presence that's real and not symbolic. There had better be a sacrifice upon an altar or else this temple stuff is just nonsense but also, there, there is this communion that the people of God come together to share the communio that flows out of that sacrifice and that presence. And so, when you put it together in terms of Scripture read in a liturgy, suddenly Eucharistic adoration is, you know, the reality of God meeting us together in His church.
1: Exactly, but doesn't St. Paul also take it one step further In the same letter that you refer to in chapter 12, when he recounts what Jesus did at the Last Supper, but the bottom line of it all is that when Jesus took, blessed, broke, and gave the bread and those who receive it, then those who receive it in fact become the temple of the Lord as well. That's right. And that uh, the very presence of Christ has to be evident in people who've celebrated the Eucharist by our words and our deeds, that we in fact begin to speak more like Christ and we begin to act more like Christ. And that's so central.
0: When do we start reserving the Blessed Sacrament, you know? Uh, you mentioned something for the sick. Is is that where it started? And how soon after the celebration of the Mass or the Eucharist, were there tabernacles reserving the Blessed Sacrament? Well, you, you
3: have to repose. Uh, the Blessed Sacrament, if you don't consume the entirety of his His body and blood, if something is left over, what do you do with that residue? You don't destroy it. This is God's real presence. You reserve it and, and people are naturally drawn uh, to Christ. Here he is. This is a perpetual presence, a a prolongation, an extension of his physical
2: body in the world now, in this place, at this time. There is no historical documentation as to this was the date when it began, Uh, and, and you wouldn't expect that to be the case, uh, historically speaking, because the church endured through periods of persecution. But what's interesting when you read the letter of Pliny the Younger to the Emperor Trajan and other sources that the persecutors were torturing Christians for the purpose of them ascertaining the whereabouts of the blessed sacrament Mm -hmm. as well as the sacred books. And so, under torture, when they cracked, this was precisely the information they wanted, the whereabouts of these sacred objects.
0: And then, did was it just automatically moving into adoration, or was there any clear moment when setting aside time to adore Jesus in the blessed sacrament in the tabernacle began?
2: Well, again, historically, it's, it's hard to say because, you know, Jesus didn't say, write this in remembrance of me, he said, do this. And they were doing it for years before anybody ever sat down and wrote like you were saying in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12. And so what we find is the historical record comes much later than the actual practice. But the actual practice is traceable back to the earliest periods. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be a spiritual instinct arising in the hearts of the faithful that if this is Christ as the testimony of the New Testament writers tells us, then this is something that we don't just kind of toss aside. This is something that we devote ourselves to. The very fact that it was hidden in a sacred spot, yeah. along with the sacred writings, tells us that that instinct was expressed, you know, concretely. It also indicates, without any clear historical evidence to convince the critics, that the uh, the faithful hearts were drawn to Christ's presence there. It wasn't just an accidental location where it was stored. You know, I, I like uh, the use of the word temple. Uh, not not
3: simply synagogue, but also temple, because that provides a, a certain continuity between the pagan and the Christian world, between nature yep. and grace. Right. I mean, Tacitus, when he writes the Annals of the Roman uh, uh, Empire, uh, asks himself, what constitutes the city? What's the distinguishing feature? It's not an army, it's not, uh, it's not uh, an emperor, it's not a constitution or wise laws, it is rather the temple of the gods and Christianity builds over that temple, perfects it, consummates it, and places at the center of the temple the real vibrant presence of Christ. Without that, it's just a building.
0: Well, Bishop, now uh, exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. What are the conditions needed for that? That's just not Jesus being in the tabernacle, it's rather a solemn form of adoration. So what is needed to, have exposition and why is that so important
1: well i think first of all that we do the proper preparations and that the 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 sacred host is is placed in uh, a monstrance or an ostensorium so that people can in fact see it and placed on the altar and that there's there's careful preparations done so that the space is proper to the sacredness of the eucharist but then when we talk about exposition it's important that people be there yeah. Yes. So that, you know, we, we speak about adoration of the Blessed Sacrament when the, when, the, when the Blessed Sacrament's in the tabernacle. But when we speak about exposition, yes. it means that there's got to be a deliberate response on the entire community to say, if we're going to have this particular focus, adoration, on the Blessed Sacrament in an exposition, then we've got to commit ourselves to be there. There's got to be at least one other person who's yeah. there before the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, because of the importance that the, the Blessed Sacrament exposed, never be alone. But it's also meant to to make sure that we see ourselves as the body of Christ that comes to to be in communion with the Lord, just as we do so within the context of the celebration of the Mass. There's got to be that sense of communion as we come to adore Jesus in the exposition of the Blessed Sacrament on the altar. So it's important that there has to be uh, other people there for that exposition. And and
3: doesn't that lead into uh, the theme of your pastoral letter? I mean, you begin with the question... Uh, why aren't we more excited about exactly. our faith? And I'm, I'm sure you mean by that, why don't we have this Eucharistic excitement, this amazement that Eucharist occasions? Uh, because if we did, then we'd have vocations and you wouldn't have only 35% of your people attending mass on a regular basis. You'd be closer to 100% right. if we could awaken that sense of of uh, wonderment and, and astonishment in the presence of our Lord.
1: That continues used to dumbfound me on, on yeah. why we would have such low numbers of people yeah. coming to celebrate the Eucharist if we really had an appreciation of what that right. what the gift is. Right. Yeah. How could we possibly even think about uh, skipping a Sunday where we wouldn't right. be able to celebrate? Yeah. The, and what's
0: the link the with benediction here? Uh, I mean, we're talking about the adoration of the Eucharist present. We talked about the liturgy, the mass, celebrating it. But we also have benediction as a special blessing
1: that's correct and that's usually at the end of the exposition it's the way in which we ceremonially repose uh, Jesus in the tabernacle again but before we do so we recognize what a blessing it is to have uh, the, the Holy Eucharist and the congregation is blessed with the Eucharistic presence before it is reposed in the Blessed Sacrament. Oh, yeah. And I you know, I think about um, some of the things we've already been talking about. Uh, when did people come to an appreciation and a need for for the Lord? Obviously, the early days of the church when people suffered so much, they saw the need of Christ to be within them so that they knew that they weren't alone, so that they could persevere with courage. And isn't that true all the way through even to our own day? I remember the story about, beautiful story about the cardinal in China. who was uh, in solitary confinement for so long and yet he was able to to just be focused on the gift of the eucharist that helped him get through so much of that suffering because he realized that that he was never alone Christ was with him, and isn't that the very same lesson that we need to learn in our reception of the Eucharist? So even in his
3: solitary confinement, he was right. able to confect exactly. the Eucharist. He was. Yeah. I
0: believe John Paul too had him come and give a Lenten retreat exactly. in the Vatican exactly. after that. He wanted to know right. yeah. more of the depth of that, Exactly. You know, I, I was
3: really struck by the example you cite in your letter of the pious seminary professor who exhorted you uh, to embody this embodiment of Christ. Exactly. After mass and carry him literally uh, into the four winds that 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 was really very moving
1: and uh, isn't that the point that Paul makes you know, again right. In Corinthians
2: we you know, become bought exactly that. You know. it's encouraging that you're getting it in the seminary class as a young you know. seminarian in formation, though, because this all the truth that can fill the head has to make it wait and make its way down to the heart So you realize this is the way you express this faith you know, I uh, I I can't help but wonder, you know, when you speak about the faith in the gift of the Eucharist, that is the one and the same as our faith in Jesus.
1: Exactly. And isn't that why the the title for the church as the body of Christ is so very important? It's not just an institution. Uh, You know, some of the cynics will want to take a look at the church as being some sort of a a corporation or just a simple institution. We really are the body of Christ.
0: And when we come back, we want to talk about why this leads to vocation and understanding how each of us has a vocation somewhere, somehow. Stay with us. I love to read the scriptures while I'm in Eucharistic Adoration. I find that in the presence of the Lord, they seem to come alive even more.
3: I usually try to spend time in Eucharistic Adoration uh, first thing in the morning. I just find that it gives me that center and that strength to attack the day like the my classes, you know, uh, my work, um, just to give me that strength and peace that I need to, to carry Him with me throughout the day.
2: Here at
1: Franciscan, students recognize their vocation as a student to study and get their work done and be a
2: good nurse or be a good doctor or whatever they want to do and they take it seriously. I feel that the presence of the sacraments on campus, specifically confession and the Eucharist and Mass, helps me develop a really personal prayer life with Jesus Christ, my Savior. That's awesome. The people here are
1: so energetic about their faith, and I think Franciscan has the perfect blend of everything. Franciscan University is academically challenging and passionately Catholic.
0: Talking about vocations and Eucharistic adoration, how they are linked, and why the adoration and, and the Eucharist is so important to vocations. Um, How, Bishop, can we understand that that this adoration would lead people to a deeper understanding whether they're called to be married, single, celibate, priest, sister, brother? How does that link together so that they can understand?
1: It's absolutely essential. If we're Ah. gonna talk about the Eucharist as being the real presence of Christ, then one other space in the world could be more conducive to us to hear God's call. Who we, who God wants us to be uh, is not an accident. It comes directly from Him. And it, if I could share with you a, a story right. where it emphasized that in my own life. And it goes back to uh, February 11th, uh, 1997, the day that I got the call that our Holy Father was appointing me as a bishop. Uh. And um, as always happens, the day you get the call is not the day it becomes public. There was going to be a whole week. And I got that call early in the morning, and the rest of the day, I was torn apart. I thought, God's made a mistake. Or at (laughs) least if God hasn't made the mistake, the Pope's made a mistake. (laughs) And I was struggling the whole day about whether or not I should call the nuncio and say, I think this was a mistake. But I didn't do that. But what I did that night when I got home, uh, I went to the chapel. And I just put the single light on the Blessed Sacrament. I took the Bible with me yeah. and I opened it up to the story of the Annunciation. And as I read that story from Luke, I began to see that the very same feelings I was experiencing that day were the same feelings Mary had anxiety, mm. unworthiness, uncertainty. Yeah. And then the messenger speaks. Nothing is impossible with God. Yeah. Because I was there sitting before the Blessed Sacrament, I felt very much akin what happened to Mary. And I received a sense of peace that was also, I think, expressed by Angela Roncalli, who became Pope John Twenty-Third. Yes. the day that he got the message. And I took that book with me that night. You know, he said, God, you know me. You know my faults. You know my sins. Uh, if you're asking me to do this, then it's up to you to give me the grace to be able to do it. But I I wanted to tell the story because it only reconfirmed for me how important the Eucharist is in understanding God's call. And so part of what uh, I think is really important for people uh, in the church today is to spend time before the Blessed Sacrament. We have a special year in honor of St. Paul in the Diocese of Pittsburgh and I've challenged every one of our parishes, all of our faith communities, to spend one entire day of Eucharistic exposition so that people could connect not only with that beautiful devotion and practice, but could couple it with what God is asking in their lives. If people are already married or they're single or they're priests or they're members of religious communities, how can people reaffirm their their (coughs) promises to God in that vocation? If people are still waiting to find out what the Lord's asking them to do, what better place to rest and spend some time with the Lord can make his will known to
0: us. Well, I think our students confirm that a lot because of our perpetual adoration and our Portsmouth Chapel. So many say, that's where I made the decision to be priest-sister or to get married, and so much so that it's even become a practice to propose a (laughs) wedding, make a proposal uh, within the chapel itself because it's under the sense of God's call.
2: You know, the Eucharist as the font of vocations is so true at a level that precedes, is it marriage, religious life, or priesthood, as you point out, because, you know, the the calling of Jesus that comes to us initially is, come follow me. And we're following Jesus, who is the God-man. And that same Jesus is singularly located in the Holy Eucharist. More than anywhere else on the planet. And so for us to show up there is to respond to that call and for us to return again and again is to remind ourselves that before we're a priest or a bishop a husband or a father we're a disciple we're a follower of jesus and we'll follow him wherever he asks us to go and that might be marriage that might be the religious life priesthood and so on but it it really identifies that the primordial form of our calling is to be that kind of disciple Faithful, disciplined, following Jesus, whatever He says, and that's something that has to be renewed. It isn't something you simply look back on. Twenty years ago, I showed up at the Eucharist. Exactly. You know, yeah. it's continual renewal.
1: Because yeah. the, the 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 second piece of that, not only does Jesus say, "Come, follow me," but we best not forget what comes take at the, the end, Correct. Right? Right? Not only it take up the cross, <laughs> like, but then yeah. even what happened at the end of Matthew and Mark's gospels and the beginning of the uh, the Acts of the Apostles, oh, yeah. where Jesus then says. Uh, I'm leaving now, it's up to you go forth and make right. disciples right. Yeah. of all nations. And
2: that sequence is so important because you can't be an apostle until you first become a disciple. Exactly. And you never cease to be a disciple when you become an apostle and go forth making disciples and that that coordination is so essential and Eucharistic. Yeah. And Absolutely.
1: we
0: call non-ordained priesthood for the right. faithful or true yeah, disciples Yeah, the priesthood there. Of,
2: of,
3: of the laity. Right. I mean, vocation is a mystery, I mean, when, when John Paul II wrote that wonderful memoir after 50 years yes. of his ordination as a priest. He called it gift and mystery. It's a mystery of divine election. Uh, you didn't call me, I called you. And you have that superb Caravaggio painting of the calling of St. Matthew, the tax collector. But, but, but if, if the future belongs to people who show up, uh, then the place you need to show up at is... The Eucharist, I mean, the flashpoint of eternity into time, this is where God and man meet. There's no more dramatic or vivid or graphic encounter. But what, what, what strikes me about your example is why didn't uh, the same sort of uh, unworthiness uh, or, or confusion strike you when you felt the call to priesthood? Or maybe you did. Oh no, no, I did. Yeah, it was a yeah. struggle Is that for right? a
1: number. It was a struggle for a number of oh, years. Matter of fact, I resisted. Is that uh, right? Oh, absolutely. I was uh, all keyed up to become an attorney. I had a girlfriend. I could picture what our children were going to look like. Uh, oh, And gosh. I had a very good friend who uh, invited me to go on a retreat, and it was a disastrous experience. Uh, after the retreat was over, I said I never want to do anything like that again. And he was courageous enough as a best friend to two years later tap me on the shoulder and say, would you do me a favor and come on a retreat with me? I <laughs> said, nope. And I said, I did it once. I'm not wow. doing it again. Wow. And he That's said, amazing. please, for me, just do it yeah. for me as a friend. And when I went on that retreat,
0: something happened. And Is it really right? goes deeper since I was an attorney and engaged to be married, yeah. that <laughs> when God hits deeper than right. yeah. all this I romance, see. you say, wow, there's so much more. Right. I
2: there's only one all more right. thing that needs to be dispelled, and that is the false notion that Regis and I are worthy of the vocation to marriage. <laughs> because the fact is, I mean, time has shown me again and again, whatever I was thinking, I was not ready on my right. own. You know that yeah. all of these callings, important. all exactly. of these callings, have sacramental graces. Right. And and uh, yeah, I mean,
3: Paul Claudel says, "Be worthy of the flame consuming you." Marriage is a consuming mm-hmm. flame. Priesthood is a consuming right. flame. Exactly. Nobody's worthy.
0: Now you are you teach that the crisis is more in marriage than priesthood right
1: absolutely because explain uh, that. you know if if people aren't reverencing the call to be husband and wife and i'm uh, very concerned and i'm dealing st- i'm starting with this in my own family right now if if people are bypassing getting married we'll just live together yeah. it's a lot easier no. we don't need a piece of paper to tell us right. uh, what our relationship is they're missing out on the great graces of the sacrament And why uh, that's so crucial is because in the the baptismal rite itself, it says these parents, this mother and this father, are the first teachers of their children in the faith. And the fact of it is that if those children are, are missing that important lesson, If their parents aren't teaching them about God, about what it means to drop to your knees, uh, if their parents aren't serious about making sure that they're catechized later on, if their parents aren't willing to challenge them to live the gospel, then that that's a, that's a crisis, right. and, that, and I think that that's the beginning of, of even a whole sense of vocation. What people will be able to see from their parents or not see from them makes right. all the difference in the world in terms of how they see themselves as disciples of the Lord or not. Yeah, I mean, if you
3: trivialize one exactly. sacrament, you're certainly going to cheapen the other. That, that same book the Pope wrote, Gift and Mystery, he recounted his own experience uh, as a child witnessing his father on his knees yes, so often late at so. night. And he describes his family as his first seminary, exactly. a domestic ah. seminary. Exactly. Wow, that's you, a good you idea.
2: <laughs> you described in a homily at the conference where we were, uh, loved ones who you were close to who were drifting in that direction of cohabitation. And what I appreciated so much was not just the fact that you had shared your consternation with us in a homily, but you went and found the appropriate time to kind of talk turkey with them as well exactly, and to share your heart. I mean, not in a way that was imposing yourself upon their freedom, but a challenge to their freedom to wake up and recognize the responsible use of yeah. it. Because that's bracing. You know, it's one thing to decry the problem. It's another thing to enter into the friendship and the conversation exactly. where you go with no guarantees of the outcome. Right, right. right. In pursuit yeah. of rectifying that. you
1: know. But that's so crucial because God uses us. Uh, right. as members of the body of Christ to call people to to, to what uh, he wants, uh, wants right. them to do. And you healthy.
0: say it's most compelling these days, the call to the priesthood. Even though it's needed to make the call more often, y- you highlight that it's more compelling than earlier, this call to the priesthood. Why?
1: Well, e- exactly, because I think that... Um, this isn't the first time it's happened to us as a culture, but but we're living in such a secular world that, 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 that people want to dismiss the importance of the priest. Mm. And yet how crucial the presence of the priest is, first and foremost, because of the Eucharist. You know, without the priest, the Eucharist can't possibly happen. Without the priest, the sacraments can't happen. And so that's essential to who we are as a faith community. Right. And I truly believe it. I see it every single day. There are uh, lots and lots of, of, of young people who wanted to give their lives to the Lord. Lots of men who um, all they need to do is be invited to say, come take a look right. at what we're doing at the seminary. Or lots of women who uh, you know, uh, are, you know, are waiting to be uh, encouraged to take a look at religious life. Or lots of young men and women who are being challenged to say, take a look at marriage is more than, um, mm. than shacking up together. It's a matter of really being committed to each other in the name of Jesus. Yeah, and it's but, not
0: just falling down somewhere called falling in love. It's right. being called to It's God's calling to unite and to make this one and bring forth new life. And
2: that calling doesn't come in a vacuum. You know, I was talking with a woman just recently who was saying, you know, here I am. After 62 years, finally somebody told me that Jesus founded one church and left the Eucharist for me. And she said, you know, for over 60 years of my life, nobody ever told me. Well, there was a young man standing nearby who said... And, and I just got invited to consider the priesthood. And now I am wrestling with that. And we, you know, chimed in, we'll pray for you, you know. Yeah. But he's like, for years, I never even heard about the priesthood as a viable option for me until somebody asked me. It turns out it was his priest, you know, who just come to the, uh, the parish where he was going, growing up, you know. But uh, for years and years, I think he's in his early 20s now, he had never really even been invited to consider that. You know, in in addition to the family
3: as a a place where vocation uh, is fostered, especially for priesthood, uh, altar boys, I I think, Mm -hmm. represent a kind of garden, uh, as the church speaks. uh, uses that image, a garden uh, where... the soil is 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 made ready and and enriched uh, for this uh, this leap, this springboard into a priest in, into a priestly identity. Now, th- there's no ministerial objection to having altar girls, uh, but the altar boy, I, I think, is, is sort of a paradigmatic example of of somebody who could very easily be urged in that direction, precisely because he has this, uh, this office, this function. And to the serve.
0: Eucharist is so key. So when we come back, we're gonna be talking about centering on the Eucharist, Eucharistic Adoration, and why that is so linked to understanding your vocation in life, where God calls you and what he wants to do with your life. Stay with us.
1: The first time I experienced Eucharistic Adoration was at a Franciscan University Youth Conference in the summer. From that time on, I have been drawn to the Eucharist daily.
3: An analogy that came to mind in prayer was the idea of a coach coaching the whole team as a unit during a game, and that's like the Mass, where we're all working together. Eucharistic Adoration is more of the Lord working one-on-one with me, just as a coach would work one-on-one with a player. Well, when I first walk in, I mean, the first thing I kind of do is just to praise him and thank him for him, just allowing me to be there. Uh, and just kind of go in there with that, that attitude of, of thanksgiving and gratitude. Um, and from there, it's just pouring myself out, you know, all the troubles and the anxieties and the fears, along with all the joys and, you know, the blessings he's given me. I just try to give my, like, entire heart to him.
1: I would say that the classes here are very rigorous because it's not just about repeating the information back to the professors. about applying our faith and applying the lessons to current events, to different social problems. Franciscan University is
2: definitely a challenging academic environment. It's unlike any other Catholic
1: university out there. We're not just going through the motions. We evangelize in the community, do service for those in need. There's even weekly sidewalk counseling and prayer at an abortion clinic in Pittsburgh. Franciscan University is academically challenging and passionately Catholic.
0: Franciscan University, surrounded by our students, with our regular panelists, and with Bishop Zubik, our special guest this day, as we're talking about vocations and Eucharistic adoration, linking them together. Uh, The importance of experiencing the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, the importance of experiencing a call from the Lord to whatever God calls you to do, whether it's single or married, priestly. Religious life, it is at the heart of it. So what do we do about promoting Eucharistic adoration? In other words, we're talking about how key it is, and yet there are places where it's strongly promoted, but there are places where it isn't. There are places which uh, just dismiss it as another devotion. Well, we'll put it to you first. Okay, it, I, I what think do we do? I think,
1: first of all, in terms of uh, my own leadership as a bishop, it's it's a matter of, of challenging, inviting uh, the priests of our diocese to make it available to the people. But then I think it's from f- what flows from that is uh, those of us who have a deep appreciation of exposition of the Blessed Sacrament to then invite people to come to be a part of it. I mean, we invite people to go to the, the newest restaurants we've discovered or to yeah. go to see the latest blockbuster movie that comes on the scene or to, you know, to watch the latest uh, football game. I won't mention any favorite teams. But I, I think that we, yeah. we have a very natural reaction to invite people. And I think we need to do that by way of faith. And that's a crucial piece because, as you said uh, earlier, People who have come to appreciate the, the, the exhilaration of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament come away different. We come away challenged. We come away recognizing our need for forgiveness. We come away with a, a greater sense of peace whenever we're in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. And I see that in so many young people who hunger to be in the presence of, of Christ uh, in, the, in the Blessed Sacrament and what's happening in their lives. And At the seminary where I live, we ha- we now have more opportunity for exposition during the course of the week, two mornings bef- uh, very early before we have morning prayer, and the students will come to the exposition and, and have a, a holy hour as well, too, and we've begun to institute that with our priests when we have gatherings of priests to have the holy hour, and and the, and the, and the guys are saying, we really appreciate the
0: opportunity These to are, do that. so important. I know we have the Exposition Blessed Sacrament five mornings of who- we can with the friars at 6 a.m and uh, then we have our chapel on campus for perpetual adoration and we never have to worry about people showing up we never have to think oh maybe nobody will be there it's always present it attracts it compels that's wonderful
3: Bishop uh, you you live uh, with your seminarians is that right yeah. that that has not been the long-standing practice <laughs> has it
1: well it was a, it was an important um, Decision for me to make when I was announced to go back to Pittsburgh, oh, yep. and it's been a—that's been the most important decision I've made since yep. since I've become bishop. Because you
3: have a sort of Episcopal palace, right, in, well, in a rather nice area <laughs> yeah, of but town. I,
1: I think it was uh, it was very nicely provided for yeah. a lot of the things that the bishops that yep. needed to do in the past, and that was important. Yeah. Uh, I think for me, it's important to be yeah. uh, to be there with the seminarians and to encourage vocations. With them, clearly, because the seminaries doesn't just because a person enters a seminary doesn't mean right, that they already know really. what, the, what the call is, but it's yeah. to help them to discern. But right. also to be there for other people who come to visit, to oh, say, I well, see. the bishop yeah. lives here. I want to uh, invite you to take a good look at what this all means yeah. in life.
2: You know, I think that's a part of the restoration of the mystery of the priesthood of spiritual fatherhood because these young men are like spiritual sons to you anyway just because you're the bishop. And if they're discerning a call to the priesthood, they're, dis- they're they're discerning a call that's going to end up leading them to be called father themselves, you know. And with the breakdown of the family, the restoration of fatherhood is such an important thing. And so the relocation of a bishop into the daily life, into constant frequent contact with them, where they're going to see you, you know, they're going to see you praying before the Blessed Sacrament, maybe playing pool or ping pong and having meals as well. Uh, That, to me, restores the family spirit. I've said to young people many times, especially men discerning the priesthood, if they say to me, well, I, I, I prayed about it, but I don't really desire it, I tell them, look, you might not be called to it, but if you don't desire the priesthood, that tells me you haven't understood it yet you might not be called to it but you have to see this as intrinsically desirable yeah, this right. is a holy sacred call to participate in god's fatherhood that is not undesirable yeah. if you think it is you haven't understood it yet right. and, and you, you know, I have oh, to say that, that
1: that is one of the most important lessons the students are teaching me yeah. wow. to embrace more and more the title of being being spiritual father yeah. Yeah. i i didn't like dismiss my kids it teach me. Right? Yeah. I didn't dismiss it but i don't think that i that I think I felt a little bit uncomfortable with it. I felt a little bit embarrassed uh, by it. Uh, You know, I think about the times that I've ordained uh, either deacons or priests, uh, and in the ritual it speaks about my son. And it was really difficult for me to speak those words to say my son, but these guys are helping me to realize how important it is for me to to see myself as spiritual father for
3: them and for the diocese. Yeah, it's it, it It's very edifying uh, to hear this, that you really are immersed uh, in the same struggles, the same mystery that these young men wrestle with. And, and, Scott, I'm really struck by that comment you made, that a young man who may not think he's, he's called to be a priest, nevertheless ought to feel drawn to it because there is something inherently attractive right. about becoming
2: a priest. And you've got to get the objective truth of you know, that sacrament, that vocation, before you're really able to hear clearly whether you're called and, to it or And
3: not. likewise, a, a priest yeah, ought, you, ought right. to see something attractive about becoming a husband and father. Not That's that he right. would exercise the option. He's already chosen.
0: Absolutely. If you are going to be like a spiritual father to the kids. You have to see the attraction of fatherhood. You have to connect with it so that you're not playing at it. You're actually having it come forth from within.
2: It's so clear to me that the essence of the priesthood is sacrifice, but not just sacrifice in a ceremonial sense. Sacrifice is the true meaning of love. And so, you know, if you're giving up something that you don't really desire in marriage, it isn't really a sacrifice. It's precisely because you recognize the value of marriage and family life that when you lay it upon the altar, it takes on the character of a holy sacrifice. And it's something that's going to endure. And I think it's also going to transform young men into viable, manly father figures in the family of God.
0: A challenge to this. People say, well, you're all excited. You're all enthused about this. But I go in front of the blessed sacrament, what do I do? I'm just sitting there or kneeling there, nothing's happening. What should I be doing? I mean, it's the Eucharist exposed, I believe, so what? What do we tell them?
1: Well, you know, I'd I'd begin by asking them (laughs) to think about the most important person in their life. Hmm. You know, how many times, you know, do we hear husbands or wives say, I just absolutely adore my wife or oh, I really adore my husband and I think that or we can say a similar language when we're with a very good friend and that lots of times in that secure relationship words don't even have to be spoken. Just to be in the presence of the other is a, is a consolation and a comfort. Well if that applies in our relationships with the most important people in our lives how much more it applies in our relationship with Jesus? That we can just go there and be there, even if we walk into the into the church, feeling very much uh, broken apart, yeah. full of pain, lots of doubts, uh, unsettled, to be able to sit there and recognize who's there and experience the quiet of that presence. Jesus is going to take over. Right. Yeah, I'm so glad That's you said good. that because you don't yeah. wait. That's you don't good. wait till
2: the fervor has come That's back. Right. You know? I remember coming into the church and making my own this prayer of St. Maria, my Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask you for the pardon of my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. But I almost always follow it up with a second prayer and it is, Lord, I firmly believe that I'm barely here. You know, <laughs> I am so distracted, you know. Your presence, I'm not doubting. My absence is what I'm fearing. Because, you know, when my mind wanders or when I'm exhausted, you know, that's what I've come to see. I need the Eucharist more. Yeah. When I'm fervent, it's wonderful. But when I'm really distracted, bewildered, exhausted, you know, that's where it's emergency treatment. Well, let's get you know. clear
0: on some <sighs> hints, some helps for these people who come in and say, yeah, I'd like to be, but um, everything else is going through my head and I'm yeah.
3: looking well, I, at the think, Eucharist. What do I do? Yeah, if, I think if you look at it from his perspective, God's perspective, he's not saying, look, I don't want to see you until you're perfect. And when you are, then you can show up and we have something to chat about. I mean, God wants to take you wherever you are. And he's saying, look, give me your distraction. Give me your doubt, your struggle, your pain, your confusion. I want you. I want everything. He's wonderfully promiscuous. I, I think of that joke by Groucho Marx. I'd hate to belong to a club that would have somebody like me as a member. I mean, Jesus is not at all like that. He wants everybody to join this club. He's not, he doesn't disdain anybody who walks into that room. Yeah, he prefers our
2: weaknesses to our strengths. Then, then, then it gives him wisdom. something to yeah, do. Yeah, that's right.
0: They like yeah. that, but they say, "I'm, si- I'm sitting there, and the the Eucharist, and all these other thoughts are going through my head, and I'm remembering scenes from movies, and I'm, I'm fearful of what's going to happen at work, and all these things. What do I do? What do I do?"
1: I mean, I think the fact of just taking the step to be there is so important. Is,
0: that's important, that's right. and, that, and, that, and
1: it's just that at a certain point one's own intentionality comes forward to say, well, now let me start to give some of these things over. Uh, yeah. and, uh, deliberately to say, I'm here because I need Jesus. I'm here because I need his comfort. I need uh, focus. I need forgiveness. So many things that, are, that happen as, uh, uh, relative to what happens in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament.
0: Yeah. and pre- Consecrating. Yes. Exactly. Using any of the prayers of consecration, like the Montfort, all the oh, different exactly. ones. Giving your day, the morning offering, doing some offering, consecration, something puts you in the right communication stream.
2: I would also say the Bible, you know, okay. of yes. turning to the Annunciation. You know, opening up to the gospels and almost anywhere you turn, you're gonna see Jesus conversing, encountering. And people in their weakness are the ones he always gravitates toward. I'd also say the Psalms, you know, there are 150 prayers to choose from. 42% of those are what scholars call Psalms of complaint, lament. You don't complain to someone unless you trust them, you know, unless you think they can do something about it. But it's a kind of freedom that children have with their parents to say, mommy, why is this daddy? Why is that not, you know? And I think that kind of openness, so you're not just coming with weakness and distraction and exhaustion. You're also coming with that kind of honesty where I'm here and not somewhere else Because you can make a difference that I can't produce myself. And
3: and sometimes it's helpful to remember, I don't need to talk. A companionable silence might be helpful. You don't really have a whole lot to say that can improve on the Word uh, who has said everything. You know, John of the Cross says, silence is God's first language. Mm. So be quiet. Shut up. Let God speak. He may have something
2: to tell you. That might be the hardest part of it. Right. You know? yeah,
1: because we live in a society that, 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 right. that just noisy, seems to really uh, you know, gravitate towards noise. Yeah. And yet all the more important is that quiet that just helps us to experience it, the peace of God. If you turn power.
3: the TV on and there's only silence, something is wrong. And the radio, you know, that's dead time. You can't exploit that. You can't sell anything. That's why silence is so important. You can't buy it. Mm -hmm. And in the
0: silence, a simple recognition of your belief. I believe Jesus is here. Wow, that's just enough. You don't have to get loquacious about the whole thing.
1: And and in that silence, Jesus also says he believes in us. Ah. And that's where the, the crucial lesson of vocation is so important. He's believing in us calling us to something, either as a married man or a married woman, as a single man, single woman, as a priest, brother, sister. That's what's so beautiful about being in the presence of Christ in the blessed sacrament.
2: You know, and that's why it doesn't distract from the Mass the way some people say. You know, in your pastoral, you dispel that also. You know, this is a preparation for the next Mass. This is a sort of celebration of what we've already done in the Mass. This is an abiding presence. This is a friend who never leaves. This is a conversation that doesn't end. You know, and, and to me, there's a feedback loop. You know, when you do Eucharistic adoration, you don't show up less to the Mass. You don't show up, you know, you know in any way diminished. It's, it's such a good preparation, and it's such a great way to kind of celebrate what you did the last time you were together yeah. with the body of Christ. Well, you
3: also mentioned in your letter about Pentecost that it was the signature statement yes. of the church, the public manifestation, but it was preceded by prayer. Exactly, yeah. They were in the That's upper room indispensable. Waiting. Waiting. Exactly.
0: waiting in prayer. Expectancy. Wow, there's an awful lot to learn from that. but when we come back, we're going to give you takeaway thoughts so that you can become more Eucharistic and deeper in your resolution of God's call and your vocation. Stay with us..
1: I'm one of the founders of a men's Eucharistic household on campus. It's called Tantum Ergo Sacramentum and we commit ourselves to going to Mass and Eucharistic Adoration on a daily basis. And part of our charism is to grow in holiness through the power of the Eucharist. For me, Eucharistic Adoration is like pausing the moment of the elevation of the host at Mass. We just humbly kneel before our King in Adoration, joyfully anticipating the next time we can receive Him at Mass. And so, Eucharistic Adoration just fills us with a desire to long for the Lord even more and more. The professors are constantly bringing in God to their subjects, no matter what it is. Not because they have to or they're trying to force it, it's because He naturally works in everything that we're learning about. I'm a biology major and it's hard, (laughs) it's really tough. But anything biology, muscle, body is cool to me. So learning about the body and the way that the body works and knowing that, that there's a God behind it all is just absolutely
3: amazing to me and beautiful. Franciscan University is academically challenging and passionately Catholic.
0: Well, we've come to the last segment on vocations, Eucharistic Adoration with our great guest, Bishop Zubik. And we're gonna ask our panelists first to give us some takeaway thoughts where people can move next with all of this. Regis.
3: Well Bishop, uh, thanks so much for coming. Uh, and I think Pittsburgh is in good hands. <laughs> uh, you, I think you've you've made a wonderful uh, splash uh, in uh, in the diocese, and I commend you uh, for this letter. Uh, and I, I know that you want to spearhead a genuine revival, an awakening of this excitement, this sense of freshness uh, surrounding uh, the mystery. You know, St. Paul uh, speaks of uh, the priesthood as as that which, becomes the custodian, the steward of those sacred mysteries. And they don't belong to you or to me uh, or to the Pope. They belong to God. And and the privilege of priesthood is to be able to dispense, to administer that gift, the largesse of God's love. And so it is an exalting vocation. And and even as a husband and father of ten, I still find it really pretty uh, attractive. It's an amazing alternative. I mean, not that I could exercise that that option, but I find it very, very uh, uh, appealing. Uh, The notion of being able to confect the Eucharist uh, and to extend the forgiveness of Jesus, to speak the eye of the Lord uh, in persona christi that's an extraordinary power. Uh, And it's all pursuant to service, service of the other. And it's not just that you say it, you've got to show it. I mean, you know, the great sundering conflict of the 16th century with the so-called Reformed churches was showing, uh, you know, does it become visible, palpable? Can you eat God? Can you see him and, and taste him and hear him and smell him? And, and Catholic Christianity answered resoundingly, you know, the bells and smells of the church. You've got to be able to incarnate, concretize this real presence. It's not symbolic, it's not virtue, it's not a book, it's not a piece of paper. It's the God-man who becomes flesh and blood and bone. And without priesthood, this mystery would not reach us. It would not be mediated somehow to blokes like Scott and myself. So (laughs) thank you uh, for being the shepherd of of so many souls.
0: Thank you for the witness you gave. Wow, yes, isn't that great? 12 Scott.
2: Like Reaches, I'm a native Pittsburgher. And so I am grateful for more than just Super Bowl 42. I am grateful for God's appointment and for this pastor. Forty-three. Forty-three. Oh, I a thought. Senior moment, yeah. I was about to 50, get uh, in there. Too. Speaking <laughs> prophetically. I just know we have six rings. That's all. <laughs> but I'm I'm grateful for the pastoral, and not only for the one on the on the Eucharistic adoration, but also for the one on the economy, and uh, the way that Christ's voice is heard by the faithful, by someone they know and love. And uh, you're 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 a bishop, you know, in a, in a wonderful way. Reading that pastoral on the Eucharist reminded me of when I came into the church, a statistical study was released that announced this staggering statistic, you know, 70 or 80% of Catholics didn't believe in the real presence, body right. And I remember taking it to my sponsor who had, wow. you know, been there the night of the Easter vigil to receive me into the church. And I'm like, what's going on here, you know? Yeah. How can so many Catholics not believe? And he looked at me and he said, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but look at ourselves. We're Americans too. How do we believe that that's Jesus? That's what really ought to amaze us, not not how many don't believe, but how did God get through to likes, you know, people like us? And and Scotty said, "If, if, if Christ can get through to people like us, he can probably use us to get through to other people like us. And it gave me such hope. You know, theologians distinguish between the fides qua and the fides qua, you know, the faith that we believe and the faith that is the power of belief. And it's one thing to acknowledge the content of faith. It's another thing to recognize the need to be renewed and the power to believe. And that's what Eucharistic adoration does for me. Even when I go exhausted and I leave exhausted, that pattern, that habit, you know, we have it in our parish 24/7 for over 10 years and what a difference it's made, not only for me, but for the rank and file in the neighborhood, the crime rate and everything else. And so to sound this call, to get people back, their, their, their hearts fixed on Jesus, then suddenly they're going to hear the vocation that Christ has given them so much more loud and clear than under any other circumstances. So again, as a native Pittsburgher, I love Steubenville, but thank you and thank God for you uh, being the shepherd of the flock there in Pittsburgh.
1: Well, Scott, thank you very much. Keep me in your prayers, but I need to say that there are lots of us in Pittsburgh who owe a, a huge debt of gratitude to you for the ways in which you influence our adults in faith formation, the ways in which you help some of our students whom you teach at St. Vincent, uh, in, and our seminarians are inspired by you and for all that you do here at Franciscan University, so thank you. And. And thanks to you, Father Scanlon, for just being an inspiration to so many of us over the years and for providing an opportunity for vibrant faith. You know, I I, I said it a little bit earlier in our conversation today. I think that the key to the whole um, important devotion of Eucharistic adoration really is found in love.
0: Uh.
1: And um, recognizing the comfort that we have to be in the presence of people whom we love is one of God's greatest gifts and it's one of God's greatest consolations. To be able to be with somebody who can carry us through the tough times of life, to be with people who can in fact increase the joys of our life. Um, uh, you know, I think that, uh, that uh, you mentioned a little er- uh, uh, earlier uh, Regis the, um, the beautiful book by uh, John Paul II, uh, uh, Gift and Mystery. And you know, uh, John Paul II has done so much to reawaken us to so many riches of our church, and especially Eucharistic adoration. And I was thinking in that book, when he spoke about his ordination 50 years earlier, he talked about lying prostrate. And what he said was the image was so that people could walk over him to come closer to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And certainly that applies to those of us who are priests, but it applies to those who are married as well. And it applies to the single. It's the reality of uh, being there to sacrifice so that we can help each other come closer to the Lord. I truly believe that Eucharistic adoration uh, helps to do that. And I'm reminded of something that our Holy Father Pope Benedict said just last week when, in his message on World Day of Prayer for the Sick. He said, you know, a lot of people will argue against sacrifice and against suffering and say, we've got to really do away with suffering and sacrifice in our world. But the Holy Father said, when you do away with sacrifice and suffering in the world, you're also doing away with love. Because a, a key element of love is being willing to give of yourself, to give yourself away for others isn't that what Jesus did when he gave us the gift of the Eucharist. You know the theologian Walter Burkhart talked about the fact that at the last supper Jesus was struggling with two things. He wanted to do the father's will and leave, yeah. but he also wanted to stay. Sure. He, his heart was breaking that he was going to have to leave his disciples, and so what he did accomplished both by giving the gift of the Eucharist, and how wonderful that gift is still with us.
0: That's a great statement. And we have here Pamphlet here, What is Eucharistic Adoration? By Bishop Zubik. And we will send it to you just for the asking so that you can keep enriching your life in the power of this adoration and rediscovering your vocation, the call of it, its supernatural depth. God will keep reaffirming in you if you're open and present to him, where he's called you, and that you'll have the grace to continue. No matter how dark or struggling the time is, the place to be is with Jesus in the Eucharist. That's where you'll find the encouragement, the consolation. That's where I was led in my own life. I remember being a JAG officer in the Air Force and saying, how could anybody live without daily Eucharist and adoration and receiving it? Because it was the one thing compelling me and leading me through my life from the Air Force to the seminary to priesthood, and I thank God ever since. May the Lord bless you and keep you, show his face you and have mercy on you, turn his countenance to you and give you his peace. May the Lord bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.
1: To receive a free handout on today's topic, or to purchase a video of this show, call 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381, or call 740-283-6357. Email your request to presents at franciscan.edu, or write to Franciscan University Presents, Franciscan University of Steubenville, 1235 University Boulevard, Steubenville, Ohio, 43952.